another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Deb. And I'm Maria. And here's our podcast. For the realistic SLP. Who is actively anti-racism. Correct. And today's uh, actively anti-racism tip is just having conversations with people around you. And you can use phrases like, I don't see it the way you do. I see it as blank. I got this from the nmaahc.si.edu website um, talking about race and that's and, such a great tip thank you yeah well i mean thank to them thank you for putting this here for us and helping people have a questioning frame of mind so today on our episode i am drinking a red blend still blend it's a 2018 california this wine, it's a red wine, as I mentioned, it's from Bright Cellars, and I actually do like it. Um, mm-hmm. the, I've, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I have not liked many of the Bright Cellar wines, but in their defense, I don't think Mike has been rating the wines that have been sent to us. Um, so who knows? But um, it is only mid-afternoon, and I do have a full to-do list. So considering this wine was in my wine, my fridge for a bit. I decided to drink a glass and then I diluted it and gave the rest to my plants around the house, but not because I was thinking it, but because I wanted to share it. Wow. Sharing with plants. That is just a new level of being a plant mom. Yeah. As I like to say, Deb is like expert level and I'm (laughs) saying I'm beginner, but slowly inching to intermediate. Oh, good. Because I've been propagating plants now, which a lot of people, if they're wondering what that is, is where you take a piece from the root of a plant. Certain plants are better to propagate than others, mm-hmm. like um, the wandering Jew plant and the pothos plant. Yes. So I'm giving you some clippings next time I see you, Deb. Thank you. Which is hopefully soon. And uh, Deb was nice enough to give me two pathos plants. So I am two different kinds, two different kinds, she might add. And I have some eggshells and some coffee grinds. So I'm going to add that into the soil, which also the soil has peat moss in it, which you Mm -hmm. mentioned to me that is good for the soil, for the plants. Yes. And I have my mister. I bought a spray bottle from the 99 cent store. So I've been misting them. You should put cinnamon sticks in that unless you have like thieves oil or clove or something, just because you did mention that you had like flies were getting attracted to your, it'll keep the bugs off. Wow. Cinnamon sticks. I'll have to purchase those from the supermarket when I go food shopping because I like to delay the food shopping. I am a a delayer of that. I'm waiting until there's like really nothing left in the fridge. Right. But luckily I have some wine and cheese, you know, because that's a staple at this house, you know. Oh, I forgot to mention my cheese. I paired it with feta. I have, so I have this red blend with some feta. So it was like, I like the salty of the feta paired with the um, sweetness of the wine. It's not too sweet, this wine. It was a, it was an even body, nicely blended it's a red blend so cool yeah did you find it was smooth remember how we learned right if it's more yeah. full-bodied it's more like regular milk right and then like even bodies like one two percent milk and right like so the mouth feel was like a two percent um milk and the flavor profile was pretty 
even. It's very smooth. It's not overly sweet or it's not overly sweet, but it's a bit tart at the finish. But like I mentioned, it was in my fridge for a bit, and that's why I said I'll have one glass, but share it with the plants because I don't know if it's at its peak tasting point at the moment. Got it. I wonder if you have to dilute some of that with water though, because I was reading some tips about plants and what I do is when I make coffee in the French press, that's how I make my coffee. The grounds, I use what I, you know, I drain the grounds, but the water that's still like kind of coffee, watered down coffee, I'll dilute that. Half coffee water, half regular water, and then plant put those water the plants with that to dilute yeah. it a little bit yeah i do the same as well aesthetic. i just make sure that the the water is still a color that's just what i go by so i i might like coat the bottom of my watering container with coffee or wine and then i fill the or rest tea. with just water yeah whatever it is that i'm using um just so my my rule is just to make the water a color because yeah you don't want to overwhelm the plant exactly Yes, but I do like that cinnamon tip. I am going to uh, purchase some cinnamon sticks at the supermarket and just mm. stick them in well, there. Well, the best, though, is if you have young living or any essential oils. I do have essential thieves. oils. Thieves oil is the best for it. It's very expensive, thieves. though. Thieves. I have frankincense. It's like, it's, oh, that's good. This one's like $40 one. for this little one. What? What? Yeah, it has a lot of benefits to it all right you get what you pay for right so the I'm sure the quality is good well i mean but it's I a did. tiny thing but you dilute it so yeah right yeah, you only need as you might need less drops if it's a better quality uh oil i've learned that one the hard way and also like it's not synthetic like you don't want to get you don't want to be putting harsh chemicals on your plants because that could be harmful to the plants but then also any of your pets in the environment because um, you want to make sure you have all natural oils. Yes. Anywho, I think that we should get to today's more fun topic that I was li- really looking forward to. So sure. I was creating this meeting and I realized this is uh, SLP's Wine and Cheese episode 98. And then immediately Ooh. I was like, 1998. So obviously that year resonates with me. I, um, I, in 1998, I lived some of that year in Delaware and some of that year in Staten Island. So I was in... I was in Staten Island at that, that year, Deb. We never crossed paths when we no. were 10 years old. No. Yeah. So I was uh, in fourth and fifth grade, right? We were both in fourth and fifth grade. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, or were fifth and sixth grade. No, fourth and fifth? Ooh. I don't know. Anyway. I'm going to go with 10 years old. Well, fourth grade, I lived in Staten Island. Fifth grade, I lived in Delaware. And sixth grade, I lived in New Jersey. So each grade, I lived in a different year. Uh, Each year, I lived in a different... Each grade, I lived in a different place, is what I meant to say. (laughs) Um, Got it. So yeah, so... um, But in 1998, there was just so many um, music and movie things and TV things that I loved, so... Uh, we found this article and I sent it to Maria and Maria picked out what resonated most with her from it. So you want to, you want to talk about what you liked most about 1998? Absolutely. January 20th, NSYNC releases, I want you back in the U.S. You're all I ever wanted. 
You're all I ever needed. Yeah. So tell me what to do now, cause uh, <laughs> I want you back. Yeah, love that line. What else? Yeah. <laughs> Bringing it back to 1998, everyone. And then shortly after that, January 25th, Victoria Beckham, which we know her as Posh Spice, she gets engaged to David Beckham. And I think they're still going strong, right? They're still mm. together. I Can't believe that. Yes. And then February 28th, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On because <laughs> yes. of the movie Titanic. I saw that movie four times in the movie theaters. Yes, it was a good one. Pretty obsessed with that movie. And as a result, that song. And then, of course, I love the Spice Girls and then mm-hmm. Sync. And that was just our lives, right? I mean, I don't yes. really, I mean, I love Lisa Frank and The Limited Two. You know, just calling it back to the throwbacks of 1998. Yeah, and what I loved, number celebrity deathmatch. Uh, show on MTV, Clay people fighting each other, celebrities. Best show ever. I don't know. They should bring that back, or at least the reruns. My goodness. Um, also, what I loved, what I loved about 1998 was Eminem signed Dr. Dre to Aftermath Entertainment. Total Request Live, um, TRL. I used to go to TRL. Like, my mom would take me there and stand outside. I never had time to prepare a sign, but um, really loved that part of life. Natalie and Brulia Torn was all over the charts for TRL. Mm-hmm. And uh, some sad things that happened. Uh, no More Seinfeld. That's where it ended. Uh-huh. Frank Sinatra died of a heart attack. And Sonny Bono died in a skiing accident. Jerry quit the Spice Girls. Ugh, that was awful. And um, AOL launches 4.0. AOL launches 4.0. Remember signing on? Of course I do with the sound. (laughs) Armageddon, I don't want to miss a thing from Aerosmith. Don't want to miss one thing. I know he yeah. had a lot of vocal issues. Oh, well, yeah? Yeah, well, he yes. did do a lot of screaming. Yeah, so yes. September 14th was when TRL started of 1998. Carson Daly begins publicly dating Jennifer Love Hewitt. Oh, yes. Did I know what you did last summer come out that year, too? I think I'm so. Sure that's 97 that's just... was one of the best. I think, but yeah, I think Scream was 97. And I know what you did last summer was 1997. Oh, it was? Yeah. yeah. 97 was my favorite that's... year for movies. Really? All yes. Right. I loved popular movies of 1998. Did you find that? Oh, The Parent Trap, The Truman Show, The Big Lebowski, Armageddon. Saving Private Ryan, Practical Magic, one of my favorites, Patch Adams, Meet Joe Black, Mulan, Can't Hardly Wait, What Dreams May Come, Rush Hour, oh, that Rush Hour soundtrack was like my favorite CD. I loved Can I Get It from Jay-Z. Nice. And, that was a great movie. Yeah. Chris Tucker, uh, Jackie Chan. <laughs> I remember uh, just like, probably watching that and just rewinding scenes so I could just keep laughing again and again. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if I watched the movie. I maybe I might have watched the movie once. I just love the soundtrack. Oh, okay. Yeah. How's it with you your love for me? Tell me what you want. Yeah, there were I mean, so many good songs. 
Speaking of music, we do have an interview coming up shortly yeah. with uh, an anxiety coach slash singer. Her name is Angela, mm-hmm. and uh, she, Angela Onstead, and uh, from uh, Courageous Artistry. And she was very, very interesting to talk to. So she's not an SLP, mm-hmm. um, and she's a professionally trained opera singer and also a voice coach. And she knows a lot about the anatomy of voice to create sound, to create, sing, you know, a singing voice. And we get into the anatomy of the voice and sound. And it's very, very interesting to just talk about such a speechy topic with someone who's not a speech pathologist, but just to see so many commonalities we have with right. other fields. And she talks mm-hmm. a little bit towards the end of the interview about anxiety and just a lot. I don't want to give anything away, but it's such a great interview. So stay tuned for the interview. Yeah. And then speaking of, so I don't know if I, I haven't done a quote on this show for a long time. And in the spirit of 1998, I'm going to quote one of my favorite movies, Practical Magic. And the sisters say, my darling girl, when are you going to realize that being normal is not necessarily a virtue? It rather denotes a lack of courage. Uh-huh. And I don't want to give anything away, but Angela gives a very similar quote. So we'll ah. put those quotes together. Yeah, good. And, uh, the quote I have to say that she ends the episode with. So no one fast forward and, and no spoiler alerts. Listen to the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I really think about it a lot during my sessions. So I won't, yeah, I won't bring it up just yet. I don't want to give, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's just something it stuck with me with the interview that I had. I have to say we had a lot of great interviews. We did a lot. We were very busy this summer, Deb. Yeah. Now we just have to puzzle them all together. Now we have to actually air them. So everyone look out for some really great interviews. Yes. Um, So before we end, can you tell me what your favorite movie was of 1998? My favorite movie of 1998. Well, I guess based off the ones you were saying, I'm going to go with Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I loved all like the, the, the party scene and it was like all one scene. I don't know. It was just great. I love that movie. Right. But we were young, so it gave me a very distorted view of high school. Like I was like, wow, yes. this is going to be parties and just people who are in their <laughs> 20s. I thought that's what I was going to look like. Agreed. Yes, that's such a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just like that movie. I don't know what it was about it. The guy that gets stuck in the closet, he was my favorite. I'm trying to. Amanda, my sister Amanda loved that movie. And um, one time, like, she used to like to watch movies over and over again. Mm-hmm. And um, she went to go put it on like a third time in a row. And I was so sick of this movie. Um, I threw a shoe at her, but I missed. And I had knocked over. Uh, a display of knickknacks that my stepmother had very carefully displayed on a table. And then Amanda and I spent uh, in, in the rest of the evening in fear, gluing back together these ah. knickknacks. And I remember looking at them and putting them back and I was like, wow, like we did it. Wow, but now impressive. in retrospect, I'm like, I was in fifth grade. So I just wonder like, do you, do, do you ever see uh, Wolf of Wall Street? I did not. Well, there's this part when, like, Leonardo DiCaprio, he took a bunch of drugs and he drove home. And he, like, there's one scene he, like, he can't believe it. He nails it. He drove all the way home, no problem, no accident. But then they showed what really happened. 
and he like crashed the car and crawled home bleeding. So that's what I think. I'm like, I looked at these knickknacks like they were like, I did it. Like I made them, they look perfect. Nothing happened. And I like, there's probably like an arm coming out of his nose or something. Yeah. Discombobulated. Yeah. I'm wondering if it was those, uh, you know, those remember those little precious moments they sold at like the Hallmark stores. Yeah, things like those. Exactly, like those porcelain like fingerie fingerings stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just trash them all. <laughs> right. You glue the head on backwards. I'm sure. Yeah. The left foot and the right foot are switched. Just a yeah. bad version of Mr. Potato Head. There's like glass holes in it. Yeah. So uh, I wonder. I wish someone took a picture. But this is 1998. Was before people had like digital cameras and took pictures of everything. So it, we're all relying upon our very false memory of Correct. the past. Correct. But uh, also speaking of false memories, right? Yeah. A lot of people say they want to drink with us, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Been trending on Instagram that like tag an SLP you want to drink with. And a lot of people want to drink with us. Not yeah. shocking since our podcast <laughs> is wine and cheese. So on August 18th, it's a Tuesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a.k.a. our time, New York time. Mm -hmm. Deb yes. gets confused. Yeah, time, Deb gets Deb. too confused. Yeah. Deb, I've been, you, in, yeah. I've been trying to see, coordinate talking to somebody in California. It's been so when you see 6 o'clock, Deb, that's when the happy hour starts. <laughs> We're going to have a virtual Zoom happy hour. We're going to have whatever you want to drink, right? I mean, we, yeah. we're not serving the maybe, drink. Maybe you and I will chat about what we're going to drink on Monday and we'll like practice it, take a picture. We'll put a recipe and everyone can decide if they want to try our drink or if they want to bring their own to the table. Oh, I like that. Maybe we should do like an Aperol spritzer or something. Ooh, or something I was going to wine cocktail. suggest something with like rosemary because I got a lot of fresh rosemary. Oh. I could bring you some rosemary. Well, this could be like our wedding. We can both have individual signature cocktails. Okay. I mean, you're the one who's supposed to get married this year, not me. So I don't want to take your thing. No, this is mining. This is our wedding. Mine and yours. Oh, mine and you. Mine and <laughs> you. you and I. Yes. Like me and you speech, but you and I wedding. Got it. Right. All yes. Right. Yeah. I'm down. We'll think of something. Maria's choice. Deb's choice. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, but I'm looking so, forward to this interview that you have about singing and anxiety because I love singing and I think it makes me less anxious. So stay tuned uh, for the interview after this commercial break. This episode is brought to you by Speech Sounds Visualized app. See speech in action. It is the only app in the world to use x-ray videos along with 3D animation to show how speech sounds are formed, packed with loads of features to accelerate learning. It is available now in the App Store and in the Google Play Store. Also, check out the show notes for a link to be entered in a giveaway to get the app Speech Sounds Visualized for free. Check out the show notes for more information. This episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese is brought to you by Bjorn Speech Publications. Bjorn Speech Publications is founded by Jenny Bjorn SLP. It's a great resource for parents, therapists, and those studying to enter the field of speech pathology. Jenny Bjorn is an expert in the field specializing in childhood apraxia speech. Bjorn's speech sound cues use fresh, diverse illustrations that speak to children. For more up-to-date, child-inspired speech and language products created for therapists by therapists, 
head over to bjormsbeach.com. And now back to the show. Hello, everyone. Maria here from SLP's Wine and Cheese, and I am joined by Angela Onstead. Hello. Hi, Maria. Thank you very much for coming on the show. So, Angela, you are an anxiety coach, psychotherapist, and a former professional opera singer. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yes. And you emailed us, like we have spoken about on the show, if anyone has an interesting story and they want to come on the show, email us. And you did, and here you are. So Here I am. <laughs> yes. I definitely want to dig into a lot of interesting things, but before we get into the digging, I say we get into some drinking. Love it. Yes. All right. So why don't you, we both have white wine. Cheers to us. Cheers oh, to and us. And you're joining us from Albu- Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? Correct. Yes. And you guys are pretty safe there with COVID, right? The state is Yeah. We've, we've had, yeah, we, our governor was, was quite proactive quite early. And so we've been able to keep the infection rates pretty low. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. As of today's date, July 1st, 2020. So we have to just Correct. appreciate what's happening today. So. Exactly. Cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> so we'll take a cheers. All right. My wine tastes, I just got like a spike of alcohol. And Ooh. I did learn when you feel it in the front of your palate, that's where I'm feeling it now. It's more sweet. So I'm drinking this Aluve, I think it's pronounced, white wine. It's a Chardonnay. It's from Minozi Vineyard and from Walla Walla Valley. And I've actually had wine from Walla Walla before, so um, which is in Walla Washington. Walla Washington. Yeah. Yes, you've heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> have, you, yeah. You've heard of it? Tell me. I have actually, yeah. A have friend of mine, been? I think, back in the day went to college in Walla Walla, Washington. Well, they have, they're known for their wines, I think, because this mm-hmm. is like the second bottle I'm having on this show from Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah, there's some really good wines that come out of Washington in general. Yes, all right. Good to know. And this says this... Um, this Aluve is the realization of our dream, a journey, many years in the making. Okay. And it's the combination of the Italian words meaning winged grape and Aluve symbolizes the connection between two of our passions, flying for our country and sharing great wine. So, I mean, I just say it's sweet and it's good, but um, what I really like better is this cheese. Um, speech sounds visualized. They're an app and they sent us this cheese. The women who created the app. Yes, they were so nice. Oh, they nice. Came up, they're our sponsor of the show and they sent us this really awesome cheese, also made in Washington. So Wonderful. here I am. Hey, you're having a Washington evening. And here I go. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your wine. So, well, I'll say first, I did a dry June. So this is my first glass of wine in a month. So wow. looking, looking forward to this. And it just so happened that we're recording this on July 1st. So it felt kind of perfect. Um, I don't have the bottle in front of me, but the winery is called Avaleda and it's in Portugal. And this is what's referred to as Vinho Verge. It looks like Ooh. Verde, but I believe in Portuguese it's pronounced Verge. And it's uh, a low alcohol content, I think 9.5. Um, so nice and easy drinking. It's got a little bit of fizz or bubbles to it. Um, and when I taste it, I really taste the tanginess in the back of my palate. So it's kind of lemony, zesty, mm, nice, um, refreshing. Yeah. 
Good. So you have like those citrus notes in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does mine have see? I know a big part. We had a whole wine episode, episode ninety three, wine one hundred and one, and we talked all about wine. And you have to really swirl it and smell it. That's what mm-hmm. I learned. And then I'm. Um, what am I? I really just smell alcohol. Honestly, that's like <laughs> maybe because mine's fourteen point four percent, and yours oh, is like yeah. nine. Yeah, so this uh, is, that uh, could be. This is mine. A smells sh- sort of like pineapple and lemon sort of more mm. juicy but yeah you don't smell the alcohol as much yeah, but that makes that. sense with a, a 14.5 that's uh yeah a packs a punch luckily i'm not driving anywhere so yeah no kidding <laughs> i am staying home and during this quarantine <laughs> but um yeah i still just feel it, that tang in the front of my mouth so it's very sweet mm. but um anyway so i wanted to talk first and foremost about when you were an opera singer for about seven years. And it's funny when you emailed me and said you were a former opera singer, I thought about when I was in graduate school, I had to take acoustics and what that is, is it measures the, it's like the science behind sound. So it measured like different wavelengths and like different sounds. I remember like the puh sound, like the pressure builds up behind the lips and then it mm-hmm. makes that. We call that a plosive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you're, you know about this. So yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay. So I'm just curious about the mechanics of singing, right? Like I, I know the anatomy and the biology of the body that you need to pronounce voice and make mm-hmm. speech, right? That's the training I went through as a speech pathologist, but not as an opera singer. So I'm kind of curious about your background and like, if you could tell us more about that. Sure. So, um, I, I have taught voice for a long time as well. And I re- actually just recently wrapped up my teaching studio. I'm no longer teaching, but, um, I do really geek out over pedagogy and my husband's also a professor of voice at UNM. So we're just total ped nerds at home and we attend all the online conferences nowadays and talk a lot about pedagogy. Um, what is pedagogy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to stop you right there. <laughs> sure. So the, the pedagogy would just be the teaching of anything, right? Oh, okay. So vocal pedagogy would just be the teaching of the voice, the, <clears throat> the learning that goes into it. So you could talk about piano pedagogy or violin pedagogy, but if you're learning the pedagogy of it, you're really going into how do we teach people how to do this? Because unlike with an instrument that is external, like a piano or a violin, right? You can see it in front of you. You can actually look at it. You can look at the way your elbows are positioned obviously the main parts of the vocal instrument are internal and you know ask your average person where their diaphragm is or what it does or how it functions and they won't be able to tell you ask them how their larynx functions they also won't be able to tell you that right it's not very common knowledge um, definitely so- not definitely not so that's no. funny did you like learning about like the vocal folds or the larynx oh, yeah find- I love yes that. isn't it interesting I find it fascinating and I found it was really interesting to me that I went through so much of my studies and actually even a professional career before I, I went back and got a master's in voice uh, vocal performance and um, t- had to take a pedagogy course and for the first time that I could remember in at that time I was 32 or 33 years old I was learning truly about the anatomy of everything and how it works. So there is a fair amount of teaching that you can do, even very successfully, um, that does not have to have uh, understanding of the science of it. But my brain really functions well with the science of it all. So when I can, when I could understand it and put it into that framework, that it's it's not magic. It's just 
coordination of different systems within the body, right? The breathing system, the structural system. Right, phonatory the, system. Exactly, the phonatory system, the resonators, right? right? The articulators, all of that. So once you kind of put all those pieces together and you can understand all those basic systems on their own, then teaching becomes a process for any type of good singing, any type of healthy good singing, um, becomes a process of really, it's like teaching people how to dance. You're teaching people how to coordinate multiple systems within the body and do it well and have it all happen simultaneously. And that leads to good singing, which, you know, probably doesn't give your, your listeners any sense of um, what exactly goes into it. But, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of your audience are SLPs and they understand the basics of it as well. So I'll just say for opera singing, um, we are using, some people refer to opera singers as professional breathers. Mm. So we're really so using the power of the breath to amplify sound. See, that's what I was thinking, because I wrote here mechanics, and then I wrote diaphragmatic breathing, right? Because I'm not a singer. I'm a, I consider myself a dancer, so I mm -hmm. like the analogy there yeah. um, and the comparison, which was excellent. Um, but I would think that you would need to propel your voice, right, opera singers. I've never been to the opera, but I've seen it on the movies, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they have to propel their voice, right? So I'm thinking mm -hmm. it has to start from the respiration, which is, like, the first process you need for speech. Yeah, you so know, I really teach it when I'm teaching, like, a beginning student or somebody who maybe doesn't have many basic skills is I teach first things first is going to be the structure around it. That's really our foundation because if we're all crumpled in our posture and our, our ribs are all wonky and out of alignment, we're not going to be able to breathe diaphragmatically. Well, I mean, we're always breathing diaphragmatically, right? But in the correct way for singing um, and for singing, you know, with loud volumes. So really it's just the, the, I think of the breath as sort of the second system that we teach, and that is like the motor that is mm -hmm. powering the noisemaker. Right, the throat right? or the larynx. Exactly, the larynx, the vocal folds. And in opera singing, if we're doing it well and healthily, which many people, if they've reached that level, they are, um, we are creating really high volumes of sound, but in a way that's really free and easy for the body once again, optimally. So we can sing for very long periods of time with orchestras of, you know, 30 to 100 people and cut over the orchestra. And I can go home at the end of the evening and I'm not tired. That's, I'm not needing yeah. to rest my voice unless something's been going poorly for me or maybe I'm singing a, a, a role that's too challenging for me. Mm -hmm. or, um, but optimally, I think, you know, people tend to think, wow, that must be really tiring or must be really strenuous. But many opera singers can have decades long careers. Um, wow. So, you know, with the, in, yeah. If they're singing with the properly, right. Using correct. proper airflow and yes. posture mm -hmm. and the breathing. Yeah. And, and right. The, the free oscillation of the vocal fold. So oh. really minimal laryngeal tension, um, you know, I, another thing I always say to people is good singing is just about minimizing tensions. Now we need the positive types of tensions, right? But if we're doing anything strange with the posture of our head and let's say we're, you know, our larynx is going to rise. If our larynx is rising, that's not going to promote freedom in the larynx and healthy singing. So it's really just a matter of troubleshooting all of the systems and figuring out what's getting in my way um, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you were just born that way, or it's just talent, or you could do that, but I could never do that, to which right. I say, that's absolute 
a pile of you know what. Wow. I'm not saying everybody could be a professional necessarily, Mm hmm right? It would take certain personality characteristics and such, mm but um, people can learn to sing very freely and very well and actually very loudly. I mean, most people were like, think of a baby screaming. Yeah, Babies they can scream for hours, right, right? Without and then they hurting themselves. yes, and then they turn very, very red, and <laughs> then I get nervous, and I'm like handing yeah. off to their parent. <laughs> And I was right. like, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a mom, so this You take is your this. kid screaming. Here you are, <laughs> pass the wine. right. But if you're watching a baby, you know, Yes, scream at the top of its right. lungs, you see the right kind of breathing happening. And that little baby instinctually knows how to use his or her instrument in a way that really projects the sound and they don't get hoarse. So we unlearn that as we get older. So you could also say that really good singing is kind of the process of Um, getting back to the the primal sounds that we already know how to make. That's amazing. I never even thought that much about singing until now. So thank you so much for that. And I Yeah. want to work on my loudness. So, and I think, um, I guess you need proper posture, right? And I do think I sometimes tense in my throat. So I'm going to try to work on that, you know, from being on the podcast and always Mm. Sure. talking, I have to Yeah. be aware of my voice Certainly. as well. Yeah. One thing that I think a lot of us in society do that is a quick fix is a lot of us, because we spend so much time at desks, we're leaning out, right? We're very, we're, we're, Right. I call, Like I call it the, like a turtle, you know, that head we're is leaning forward. out. Yes. Exactly. Lean And then it just, back. you know, you can even look and see the tension in my SCMs and here in the front of my throat. Right. But if I pull my skull kind of back in space and center my ears back over my shoulders, I've released a lot of tension here. So A lot quick of posture and easy trick. work then, huh? A lot of posture. Yes. So then you seem like you know a lot um, about singing and opera and uh, the McVoice and all that fun stuff. But then you decided to take a different step towards your career, right? And go into psychotherapy and become a anxiety coach, right? So that must have been a change, um, right? Yeah. So you, how long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for about eight years now, give or take, um, Eight years. thinking about my training and everything like that. But Mm hmm um, I lived in Germany uh, for a long time, and that's where I was doing my opera career. And then when I moved back to the United States, um, I just, I didn't want to be a freelance artist Mm in the hmm United States. And I just, I was ready to come home and be with my friends and family. And Um, I knew I was still wanted to continue singing, and I still do sing, but um, I knew that in the United States, unfortunately, with our arts uh, system being the way it is, it's not as well-funded as it is in Europe. And, you know, especially right now, of course, the community is going through such a crisis. Yeah, the Um, arts are really suffering and yeah, who knows there when the is, theaters are going to open and it's sad. I know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's terrible. My heart breaks for so many colleagues that I know who... this has been their whole entire lives and now it's all been yanked out from under them. But, but anyways, I, um, I was always interested in psychology and I have to mention that in a way teaching singing, teaching voice lessons is a lot like counseling because as you probably know from the work you do, you can't do good vocal work with people until they've kind of bared their heart to you, right? They come in for a lesson and they first have to tell me everything that's going on and talk about some things and then we can start singing. So we don't ever just go right into singing. Usually people come in and they, they have something they literally have to get off of their chest Mm -hmm. or Right. out of their throats that they have to express, tell me what's going on in their lives. If they're very upset, if they've had something very sad or 
they're very angry, if something like that is going on in their lives, oftentimes the singing lesson will be difficult. So I always joke that teaching private voice lessons and doing psychotherapy is very much the same type of energy because you, it requires your 100% attention. Yes. And your incredible listening skills. Active listening, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Empathy, of course trying to put yourself in the shoes of your client or your uh, voice student and say, what is it this like for them? So anyhow, I, I ended up doing a degree um, in counseling and then I, I went into therapy and um, I never thought about combining my two professions of, of music and uh, mental health. And then it just sort of dawned on me like, wow, this is actually, I, I know so much about both fields. And I was always curious about exploring the mental health aspects of a professional music career because people struggle, right? There's a lot on the line Absolutely. for them. Absolutely, yeah. you're a full-time performer, um, or even if you're just striving to be a full-time performer, or you're, you're just getting up and singing in front of people. It, people are, are really, they, they have a lot of strong emotions around it, as, as anybody can understand. Because, you know, if, if you have to go up, if you go up to 10 people on the street and ask them what their greatest fear is, half of them might say something like public speaking. Absolutely. Or singing in front of people. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I guess it requires you to be very vulnerable. So um, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So now you have your own um, practice, mm -hmm. or right, your own, and then you're um, you're taking clients, and, and similar to speech pathologists, you're assessing the clients when they on their first session with you, right? Or you're getting to know them, and you're yeah. assessing them, and you're maybe asking yourself. Um, how are they presenting, right? Like if they're anxious and what are their triggers? So I'm just kind of curious about like the assessment process because, you know, as SLPs, we assess too. And I feel like assessment to have a good assessment, you will guide your treatment, right? You need a good assessment to know what to do with them, right? And Definitely. make a plan and make goals and, you know, what's, what, what can they meet and what's more, you know, have realistic expectations, so just curious sure. of your assessment um, process, you know, with a yeah. new client, let's say. So it's, you know, I, I will say I have my psychotherapy practice in which I don't see only musicians. I see people from all walks of life with all types of different issues, um, all different ages. I see couples. So I, that's one part of what I do. And then I have my um, anxiety coaching business. It's called Courageous Artistry. And in that business, I work solely with performers. Um, and I really saw a need there to provide specialized services to the performing arts community because I know from the past when I have had my own mental health therapy, if that, it's, it's going to be a very rare therapist that can understand what it is like to be a professional opera singer. Mm -hmm, what right. are the specific challenges, right? It's so... I felt very called to help people in my profession with the types of issues that they face, not just stage fright or, you know, performance anxiety, but just the anxiety of, of being a professional performer or a, you know, your, or somebody who's attempting to be a professional or somebody who's in their student phase of their training and with the anxieties and fears that come along with, how am I going to move forward? How am I going to turn this into a career? What does this all mean for me? So in my therapy practice, there's a very set assessment procedure, as I'm sure it is with you. It's, mm -hmm. it's a form and it was designed by the practice um, in which I work. And we do what's called a biopsychosocial assessment where we're assessing health concerns if there are any we're right. going back and assessing you know social things family history relationship histories what's going on with relationships in your life right now work 
right? And then we're also just assessing people's mental functioning. How well are you doing on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. What are the types of things you struggle with? Frequently what clients come in and present with, um, they're right on the money. They know themselves well enough to say, I really have been very sad lately, or I am mm-hmm. experiencing a lot of anxiety. But oftentimes it, they will think it's one thing, but it'll turn out to be something else. But in my performance anxiety coaching business, that I, I can um, be a little bit more free because it's not, um, I'm not being reimbursed by anybody's insurance. It's a, it's a right. private service that I offer. So I do have my own sort of assessment procedure. Mm-hmm. I have a, what's called a discovery questionnaire in oh. which I ask a lot of questions to the performer. Um, what is it that you struggle with? What are some of your biggest goals? Um, how, how can I be helpful to you as a coach? What type of feedback do you enjoy receiving. Um, so just to kind of know like what, what's, what's going to be helpful to this person, right? Some people want more of a gentle listening presence uh-huh. and that's going to be most helpful. And some people want somebody to be more firm with them and to right. be more directive. Um, so, so yeah, you, it's different for all. So you're kind of asking them and just seeing like what they prefer so you can better meet their needs. So that's yeah. great. And yeah. they're, they're going to tell you what they want. So you just got to do it right? That's right. That's right. And I try to keep it open and say, is this being, is this helpful? I would like to be helpful to you. So please, if this doesn't feel helpful, this is your time. And I want you to be honest with me because it could be that maybe I'm not communicating something as well as I could, or maybe you need a different type of approach on something that we're working on. For sure. Yeah, that's a great way. I really like that honest, um, what do you need so I can provide that to you type of assessment, which is great. And, you know, for speech pathologists, maybe if we're working with a young kid, we really can't do that, but you have their parent, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're working with someone who had a stroke, maybe their caregiver, you know, so Mm -hmm. I think it's like what you mentioned to communicate and clearly like, is this helpful? Is this not? And, And I think that's like really big of you, of a professional to be like, I know what I'm doing, but it might not be working right now, but I'm willing to switch and adjust my sales to fix, you know, to adjust to help you more, you know, so I think that's great advice. I think with, um, you know, generally speaking with my anxiety coaching business, I'm working with people who overall have higher levels of functioning, Mm -hmm, right? right. Because they are are professionals in a certain type of industry. It, It implies a certain amount of, um, stability Mm -hmm. you know it's they might not feel great inside but at least in their outward lives they're presenting as if they're very together most of the time right right well at least they're more yeah independent let's say right they're not they're independent individuals with a job and a career and trying to progress right right but i agree with you in my therapy practice that's it's a little bit different than sometimes what a person thinks is going on with them might not be the main issue that's going on. And oftentimes, as I'm sure it is in your field, it takes a little bit of digging to figure out what's actually underneath. Yeah, right. For sure. Yeah. So you see that too, then. Oh, okay. All right. Good to know. Or sometimes people present like everything is fine. And then later on, we Mm. find out, oh, everything is really not fine. You're just very good at holding it all together and presenting as if. Right. Yeah. So is that I don't know if this is related to the term imposter syndrome. I see that um, thrown around a lot. And I feel like there, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like there's different interpretations of it. How I look at it is if I feel, do I feel imposter syndrome? I mean, 
I don't know. That's a hard question. I mean, some days I do, I'm like, huh, is this right? Is this working? Am I doing the best I can? And then other days I'm like, I think I am. Because <laughs> if I didn't, if I didn't do the best, I wouldn't be thinking about, am I doing my best? So the fact that I'm even asking myself, am I doing my best is, is my best. So yeah, I like that take on it. I think that's a very healthy and self-supporting take on it. So bravo right. to you. Maria. Well, well, if you think I'm healthy, well, uh, <laughs> two thumbs up, then I'm going to have more wine. I go for it. Pour away. Well, I think the thing with imposter syndrome is it's going to show up differently for everybody. And I, I do think it's a very human thing to feel. And I would even wager that if somebody says, oh, I've never felt that way, they're probably lying because mm. whether it's that we are young in our field, for example, or maybe we are um, a person who presents a certain way, or maybe we have built impressions such as in order to be a successful SLP, I have to be X, Y, and Z way. Mm, and I perceive right. myself as not being that way. Therefore, ooh, I'm going to be found out. They're going to know that I'm not really as good as, as they think I am, right? So I think even really established professionals can oftentimes suffer from this. Um, it's that maybe, maybe one way of looking at it is it's that feeling as if how I feel inside um, – and what I'm trying to project outside seem, seems like there's a disconnect. Mm, okay. So, you know, I That's think oftentimes all of us internally, we often have a lot of fear and doubt about our choices or who we are, our self-esteem, whether For it's sure. in relationships or it's in our professional world or wherever it may crop up. Um, and I think in the arts, this comes up a lot. Um, I can only obviously speak from, you know, from the most experience from my field of opera singing, but opera has such a long history. It's a very specific and specialized art form. There are very specific styles of teaching. It's mm -hmm. not like jazz, for example, where you're encouraged to step outside of the box and do a lot of improvisation or, and you know, it's right. not that everybody wants all opera singers to sound cookie cutter alike. You want to be singing with your authentic voice but in a style that many people perceive as being quite similar, right? And there are just certain standards within the profession. It's maybe sort of similar to like ballet versus hip hop dancing. Right. It's more like a classic kind of um, yeah. style of singing. Right. Right. It's got yeah. hundreds of years of tradition mm -hmm. and documents to show that this is what this community values. So and you know, technique, right? Technique yes. is probably highly valued for ballet. Oh. At least it's like, Oh yes. Is that oh, yeah. back toe pointed? Is this up? Or is your shoulders a crop down? Like, no, we're like, for instance, like you said, like in hip hop, like, yeah, maybe you can hunch your shoulders and that is part of the style to come in. Where in ballet, it's like all about the lines and being open, you know, and if you mm -hmm. hunch, no, they're like, no, Goodbye. and you're like, yeah. you're like, oh, I was trying something new with ballet. Yeah. No, nope. no, 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 <laughs> yeah. you're in the yeah. wrong class. <laughs> right. So, so. right. And, and, you know, for opera singers, we do get to make certain stylistic choices. But mm -hmm. yeah, in terms of technique, a certain sound is valued and you want the sound of the voice through the breaks of the voice, which we call passaggi, which is uh, the Italian term for, for breaks or passageways. So, you know, when, when the laryngeal tilt or pivot happens in the voice, um, then that's a moment where the voice experiences a little bit of a break. And we work mm -hmm. to unify the top and the bottom of the voice so that they sound 
very, very similar, whereas other vocal styles value having very different sounds, like a very maybe brassy chest voice sound and then a very airy head voice sound. And in opera, it's, it's all unified. But, I, you know, I think no matter what the community you're coming from, no matter what the profession, whether it's the arts or something else, anybody can suffer from imposter syndrome. And it's that feeling of maybe I don't belong. Mm-hmm. I'm right. Not good enough. Yeah. And who doesn't relate to that? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Would you say that comes like from within yourself first? Like if you don't have that self-confidence, then it'll, it will show up as imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I think a lot of people experience that and maybe do a really good job, especially mm-hmm. in, in the performing arts, because you have a certain image you need to project. You can't, right. You, you can't let everybody yeah. always know how insecure you feel because you might feel like then you become a target or people might not take you as seriously. Correct. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think some of us are maybe born with great self-esteem or were raised in environments that provide us with really good, healthy self-esteem, um, mm-hmm. that whole nature versus nurture question. But overall, right, we're humans and we want to be loved and we want to be accepted and we want to belong. And when we perceive that we are not in some way, shape or form, whether that's the truth or not, it's all about our perception. Correct. Yes. Which brings me to my next uh, question for you. You um, talk a lot about um, anxiety, right? And um, there are like um, certain diagnostic criteria to uh, to be characterized as having like anxiety disorder. I think mm-hmm. one of them was like muscle tension, um, sleep disturbances. So there are actual like criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I'm just curious, do you talk about with your clients, like how to reduce or limit their like physical symptoms? Like if your heart is racing, like your hands are jittery, you know, it's just like how I feel after I've, after I've had like two cups of coffee, right? So yeah, buzzing, yeah. So. <laughs> yes, I, so, I talk about that a lot, a lot, okay. a lot, a lot. In fact, oh, I think all right. anxiety is probably one of the most common mental health concerns, especially nowadays during the time of the pandemic. But it Definitely. was prior to this as well. It's been on the rise for decades now. Um, women are more susceptible or more prone to anxiety disorders than men are certain populations, certain age groups. We just have mm. a lot more diagnosing of anxiety disorders that goes on currently. Um, what the reasons are for that, that's the whole other rabbit hole. Um, yeah. you know, but uh, you know, it is what it is. And it's also become, I think in a way it's, it's people are much more open about talking about their anxiety nowadays than they Definitely. were 10, 20 years ago, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, it's great sure. that we're, we are slowly, we still have a lot of work to do, but we are slowly destigmatizing mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not such a, a problem to talk about anymore. But what happens in anxiety in general, just any type of anxiety is there's a physical aspect, there's mm-hmm. an emotional aspect, and then there's the cognitive or mental aspect. And it doesn't really matter where it begins. And I don't even know if it's worth examining where does it all begin, because that doesn't help us solve it. But What's happening is our, our system, you know, this, this holistic system is perceiving something in our environment as a threat, mm-hmm. you know, Correct. hundreds and thousands of years ago, it would have been a lion or a tiger or a wild animal, right? Uh, right. And that's it, when the parasympathetic nerve or the sympathetic nervous there system you go. Yep. fires. And that's when you have the jittery hands or fight or flight. 
Right. Yep. You go into fight or flight. And what happens with any type of anxiety is, you know, sometimes this is warranted. If we didn't have any anxiety at all, we'd be in trouble because right. it keeps us safe. It's an yes. adaptive response to keep us safe and, and alive. But the problem is many times for many people is that they have this feeling of doom or of fight or flight, like this impending doom. Yet in their environment, they can look around and say, but nothing is about to hurt me. Right, it's, right. It, you know, it becomes that we, our sympathetic nervous system is almost permanently fired up for a lot of people. And I would argue that, um, you know, especially right now in the pandemic, just leaving your house, especially I can only imagine living somewhere like Brooklyn. Right. Right. What you're faced yeah. with every time you step outside of your house. Um, a lot of noise. So, a lot yes. of noise. <laughs> a lot of noise. And, and um, just knowing that we are vulnerable to a virus for example, mm -hmm. that's that's a threat that we can perceive and um, we can feel very afraid and go into fight or flight. So when we go into fight or flight, the body releases certain hormones and chemicals, right? Adrenaline, um, cortisol, a bunch of other ones, but it gets us ready to run or to fight or to hide or play dead. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine if we actually, that's, that's wonderful if we're actually under a threat and we need to do those things. So our body gets all charged up, our heart is racing, blood is rushing to our extremities, away from our organs, our digestion slows down, our pupils dilate, our um, salivary response stops. Um, a lot of singers talk about this because we get a dry throat when we're about to sing because we're nervous. So wow, problematic, yes. right? So um, the question is, can we learn to activate the parasympathetic response, which is the, right, the other side the opposite, of that. Right. Mm -hmm. What we refer to as rest and digest. Mm. So can we bring our system back into rest and digest where our heart rate slows, we feel more at ease, we, we literally feel more at rest and we're mm -hmm. no longer under this threat. Um, and yeah, there are plenty of things that a person can do to either target the physical symptoms and to, it's, it's like there's there's kind of, two doors we can sneak in. We can sneak in on the mental level and go, okay, I have some thought work I need to do around this. Mm -hmm. I need to start thinking about how I think. Because yes. if I'm waking up in the morning and I'm grabbing my phone and I'm scrolling through the news and in my head, I'm going, oh no, oh, this yeah. is terrible. Oh my gosh, right. what's going to happen? And this is so awful. I'm getting anxious so just thinking about this. Like right? this is like our everyday life. This is our everyday know? life. And what do wow. we do? Most of us, we sleep with a phone by our bed yes. and we pull it up right away in the morning. So right away, we, even if let's say we were expecting something positive, um, when we start scrolling through our phone, um, mm. it is stimulating certain chemicals within our system. And frequently what we're seeing on our phone when we check our email or the news or social is um, stuff that we perceive as negative. And so mm -hmm. we start that fight or flight response, maybe in a very mild way, sometimes first thing in the morning. Um, wow. That is, I'm, I'm assuming that's not a good way to start your morning. <laughs> my goodness. If I could, you know, sometimes with my clients, I'm like, please, if you could just do like a few things for me over time, you could really reduce your anxiety. Number one, monitor your device usage. Mm, okay. That's I mean, a great really reduce tip. it, really reduce mm. your device usage. None of us, I have to say, maybe somebody will take issue with this. None of us are so gosh darn important that we mm -hmm. need to be checking our phone every five minutes. I'm yeah. sorry. You're, right. You're not that important. There is right. nothing that has to, if somebody really needs to get a hold of you, they'll figure out a way. Yeah. They'll right? call you, I think. Exactly. They'll call you. You could hear that. You can still have your phone out. 
right? Yeah. Somebody would know how to get a hold of you if they really needed you. So if we can limit limit device usage, if we can bring in um, wonderful calming grounding practices like breathing exercises or a, med- a regular meditation practice, mm-hmm. um, regular exercise is also a fantastic thing to help manage your anxiety. However, we want to be careful. If you are a person who has really high anxiety and you also engage in a lot of high intensity sports, you might be unknowingly increasing your anxiety. Because when we're in the exercise phase and we're breathing really hard, we're actually increasing our sympathetic nervous system response. Now for a lot of us, if our overall anxiety is rather moderate or mild, we might do some strenuous exercise. Like let's say I go out into the street and I do some sprinting. Right. If I'm overall kind of you know, mild on the anxiety scale, Mm -hmm. that burst of sympathetic activity might be okay. And then also when I stop, my breathing really slows. And Mm -hmm. then when it slows, I go back into that parasympathetic response, the rest and digest. Definitely. I could see that right after a workout and you're like, cool. And you feel good about yourself. Yes. Yes. But if we are living with really high anxiety all the time, Maybe we don't even know it. Maybe we're just so keyed up and we're so used to being so keyed up all the time. Really strenuous exercise might be something that overstimulates that sympathetic response. So for people like that, I usually suggest something slow and moderate mm-hmm. as exercise. A long walk, a yoga session, a slower right. type of dance form. Right. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I actually have a couple of people I'm thinking of right now, not saying any names because I, I love to uh, meditate. I use the calm app so guided yeah. meditation. Good for you. Thank you. It's definitely very helpful. I highly recommend meditation. Me too. Yes. I do it on a daily basis too. Good, yes. It really makes such it. a difference. It does. Cheers to yeah. that. Cheers to that. I yes. mean, it's, it's kind of sad. It's like, I have to sort of bargain with people in order to get them to make the time because everybody, their first instinct is, I don't have time for that. Yes. Or a couple of individuals that I, who was like, why don't you try yoga or come to yoga with me? And they're like, that's too slow for me. And I'm like, that's why you need it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too bored. I can't sit still for that long. And I'm like, well, doesn't that give you some Tell you something. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Yes. That's exactly how I feel is that oftentimes when we slow down that much for people who are used to constant distraction or maybe, I mean, this is a a whole other topic, but we can get really sort of addicted to the chemical state that we live under. So if we are a high intensity person, high anxiety, and our system is used to really high levels of adrenaline cortisol, Mm. and they suddenly dip or go away, we might feel feel kind of scared or weird in that moment because it will feel so unfamiliar. So that unfamiliarity can really frighten people. And then when they have to slow down, like at yoga or doing meditation, sometimes then the real the real true essence of us comes bubbling up to the surface and we have to deal with that. And, you know, not everybody's ready to do that. Definitely not. It could definitely be scary too. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. so, and, you know, sometimes I'll catch myself too. um, Like I'll be doing the dishes or I'll be cooking and then I'm like, it's so quiet in here. I need like a podcast and I'll be like, Hey Siri, turn a podcast on, you know? And then I'm like, Oh wow, Siri's just gonna come on now. <laughs> She's gonna do she it. Just, for you. Oh, okay, I stopped. She's her. so obedient. I, stopped, I know. There she is. So Thanks, my, Siri. my trusty, my trusty gal pal. She's right yeah. there, ready to play my music. 
And then sometimes I'll catch myself and I'm like, why can't I just wash the dishes or cook in silence? You know, do I, I, Mm. and then in my head, I'm like, maybe I feel like I need that like constant stimulation and again, something to think about, right? Like some insight. Yeah, it's all food for thought just to think, why is it that we are, you know, I think we can say this pretty generally about our culture. Why is it that we are so uncomfortable with silence? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you go to some people's houses and like all the TVs are running and all the radios or, you know, it's just, we, I think we do oftentimes have fear of our own internal process um, and, you know, I can't say across the board that for sure all of those people are not functioning well. Some of them may be functioning very well. And it's just a habitual thing, but mm-hmm. I think it's worth exploring. Definitely worth exploring. <laughs> I heard this, um, I guess, a quote during meditation and it said, uh, the hardest person to sit with is yourself. Oh, yeah. So just to be in silence with your own thoughts is tough. And maybe you want to kind of drown out those thoughts a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, because some people's, you know, mental landscape, what they, their self-talk, what they say about themselves to themselves. And it's not like this appears in these like neat little thought bubbles above our heads, Mm. you know, but we are running some stuff constantly in the back of our heads about ourselves, our perception of ourselves, our lives, other people in our lives how we show up in the world. And these can either be really helpful and supportive thoughts, kind, or they can also be really, really negative. So observing, yeah, observing your thoughts about yourself is a big step to seeing, you know, I guess where your attention is going on. Yeah, yeah. If 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 you are constantly running a bunch of, you know, what I call garbage thoughts about yourself, of course, if our, if our brain is producing thoughts like that, we are going to have, generally speaking, a difficult emotional consequence. Nobody can go around, you know, bullying themselves all day long in their heads and emotionally feel good. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And then, sure. and then we don't physically feel good either because then we stimulate oftentimes the fight or flight response or the... So I see how they're all connected where you did say you can't really pinpoint one or the other. Yeah. um, I mean, I think it's important to realize you can take action at the level of the thoughts and you can take action at the level of the body. The emotions are a little bit more mysterious in my estimation. It's, but we tell ourselves in our culture, we, we say things like, oh, you just shouldn't feel that way. Mm. Right. Good luck with that one. Good luck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely heard that one before. (laughs) Right. So if we can think, if we can reprogram some of the types of thoughts we're having, or we can bring more calm or groundedness into the body, frequently we will have a more positive emotional response. For sure. Right. That's, that's really helpful. I really like how you outlined everything kind of came like full circle there. So, you know, to number one, to think, to monitor your thoughts about yourself and, you know, maybe catch yourself like, oh, I always drop things or, oh, I'm always, I'm always late. You know, this is me. This is me. Oh, I'm always late. Or like, oh, I don't know how to cook, you know? And it's like, okay, just like, you know, you got to stop and maybe tell yourself like, I'm human. I make mistakes or, you know, I'll do better next time. Yeah. I've listened to some stuff about thought work and maybe um, she talked about like, uh, think about like a ladder and the rung, so like starting at the bottom is like the negative thought. And then the top 
at the latter would be like that's complete opposite so like i'm a terrible chef versus like i'm the best chef i'm an excellent i'm the best <laughs> yeah. chef yes i didn't mess up ha- boiling eggs no you know <laughs> so instead of just like starting at i'm the worst chef just thinking oh i'm the best chef that's such a difference right so maybe just thinking of a ladder going up the first rung which is sometimes i'm a bad chef or sometimes i can be good you know adding a word like that you know, to make mm-hmm. it a little and make it feel a little bit more comfortable. So. Yeah, because if we just were only like going in uh, about our days with uh, trying to do only positive affirmations, we wouldn't buy it. We wouldn't believe ourselves. We would yes. reject it right away. Sometimes we can insert some positive affirmations and work hard at believing those or visualizing. What would it be like to be that person who thinks that way? But what you're talking about is just getting a little bit more, still staying realistic, but kind and supportive like you wouldn't tell your best friend man you're such a terrible chef you might say something like well you might not be the best at it but you can learn yeah or i like how you figure this out yeah this dip that you made was good you know or Mm -hmm. you know maybe the chicken you well maybe next time you need a timer like you know something like give and take right right? yeah or you know (laughs) people have to learn how to do these things and i can learn too or i've learned how to do other tricky things before or you know just putting that slight spin on it that is much kinder and more supportive to yourself than oh i'm terrible i'm a terrible chef right period and then period done yeah yeah that's an absolute right (laughs) for sure (laughs) so working on your thoughts will hopefully translate to reducing maybe I guess that well reducing the sympathetic nervous system always being fired up Mm -hmm. because you have all these negative thoughts and then add some grounding some breathing some yoga right Mm -hmm. so these are all kind of just wrapping everything up for our listeners because I feel like journaling is great journaling yeah great so I like we like to end our um, episodes with some type of quote Um, So you have one, right, you would like to share with us? I do. So I'll uh, preface this by saying, um, oftentimes when I'm working with people, what I see is that it's not always that they're afraid that they're not good enough. It's sometimes they're afraid to let themselves really shine. Mm -hmm. Right? Because for whatever reason, maybe the family you grew up in, the environment you grew up in, your gender, cultural, societal expectations, you name it. Sometimes I feel like we have to, we feel like we have to shrink ourselves in order to be liked. Mm -hmm. Um, So this quote that I really like is by a spiritual leader named Marianne Williamson. I don't know if you've heard of her. I have not. Yeah, she has a lot of really lovely stuff. Um, And the quote is, I think this is probably her most famous quote, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. I feel like I may have heard this in yoga one time. Oh, that sounds like a good yoga class quote. (laughs) So in the yoga spirit, why don't we end this interview with namaste? Namaste, Maria. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Angela, for coming on. So if our listeners want to find you and learn more about you, you seem like you have a lot of information, a lot of resources. I do. I have a website. Yes. Your website Mm -hmm. is going to be in the show notes. Great. www.courageousartistry.com. And I have a free download there with some anxiety 
um, I call it anxiety busting rituals for performance days, but they go for anybody. They're not just performer specific. There's no like magic thing that performers have to do versus, you know, non-performers. Um, and yeah, uh, people can always email me at ingela, I-N-G-E-L-A, at courageousartistry.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at, at courageousartistry. Thank you. Courageous artistry. Love it. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so much. My Bye. pleasure. Bye. Bye.